Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, inher your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Darren, if you'll come up, I'll pray for you. Lord, um, thank you for Darren, for his life, for his heart. Use him today, we pray, just to build up the body here, your saints, with the truth of your word. I pray that as Darren brings, brings the truth, that you would just give him clarity and boldness that it would come with love. And, and Lord, you would just be pleased as we gather, Lord. Um, as, we, as we listen, Lord, just give us um, open hearts, um, willing minds, just expecting you to challenge us, to push us, but also to encourage us in the gospel. Use Darren, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right. All right, all right. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, my name is Darren Swanson, and uh, like Kevin said, I was one of the, an in, I was an intern here a few years ago. Now um, I'm married. Ooh, little ringy, ringy. Thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, I'm married to a nurse. Her name is Rebecca. I have a daughter. Uh, I teach social studies at West Middle School. Um, I have an MC that I'm leading. I live right down the street. Um, yeah, and, and this week has been really difficult for me, so I just want to say thank you for all the people who have prayed for me uh, this week and last week as I've kind of wrestled with some health issues. Um, thank you for your prayers. Um, I would not be here if it, if it were not for you. Um, so just just thank you for that. Um, well, happy Independence Day on 4th of July. Um, like Kevin said, I'm preaching through Psalm 2. I've been given this opportunity to expound God's Word. But before I, I dive into it, um, I do want to ask a question uh, in step with the spirit of the holiday, which is this. What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free? I think we'd all appreciate the fact that as a country, America does have a lot of freedoms, freedoms which were fought for very uh, boldly. We would all say that this is a good thing, right? It's a good thing to be free. Yet what might that word mean? 
It's free is simply a matter of the ability and the opportunity for someone to do whatever they want? Or is it more than that? Well, I want to submit to you this morning that there are two kinds of freedom at play in our world today and within the world of Scripture. There is, on the one hand, what you might call unhinged freedom, and then there is true freedom, unhinged freedom, and then there is true freedom. Another way of looking at it is that there is freedom of self, unhinged freedom, and then there's freedom from self, which is true freedom. And it's the former that our country is obsessed with. And it's this theme that's at play in Psalm 2, written by David and another psalmist. The people are celebrating the coronation of their king, King David, and they're doing so by way of song. And as the psalmist leads God's people, he encourages, he encourages them by reminding them of God's promise to establish the king and kingdom. And so, there's lots of ways you can break this passage down, but a very simple way I want to do this is by putting it in three parts, right? The first thing I want us to see is that we all resist God's kingdom, and then I'm going to explain why. The second thing I want us to see is the nature of God's kingdom and how it works. The third thing I want to explore is how we can take part in God's kingdom. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Verses 1 through 4 is where I draw this first point. Why we resist God's kingdom. In verse 1, there's a question that's actually a bit of a rhetorical question. And it sets the framework for this passage, which is this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Scholars aren't sure the exact moment that this psalm refers to. But Israel was regularly surrounded by nations who were unsympathetic towards them and their God. The psalmist is then recalling through a song this sort of problematic situation that they found themselves in. You see, Israel's dealing with powerful people that actively resist them and their kingdom's jurisprudence. The text says that they were, quote, raging and plotting against God and His anointed, or His, His Messiah. And their reasons were clear. They hoped to shake off and break away from God's rule by any means necessary because they wanted freedom. They wanted to be free from any sort of claims that Israel's God might make on their way of life. David was a threat, so they had to do something about it. This is clear from the imagery that we see in verses 3 of bonds and cords, which are just metaphors for restraints or shackles of some sort. And, and though we don't know many details about these rulers, many people today share their same sensibilities. People don't want to be ruled from the outside. We can see this on the global front with dictators like Xi Jinping, for example, where he, through this sort of celebration or pageant, celebrating communism, a celebration in which he gave a speech saying that the Chinese people will, quote, 
Never allow any foreign influence to bully, oppress, or enslave them. He later on went on to say before a crowd of 70,000 people that, quote, anyone who dares to try to do so will have their heads bashed bloody against the great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. Pretty intense. But it, it's not just rulers in a far-off country that shirk off outside influence, but rulers, presidents, and governors, and cultural influencers here in America. You see, here in America, we want unhinged freedom. It's not just freedom from outside influence, but freedom from something more existential. See, America wants freedom from moral obligations, moral absolutes, anything transcendent that makes objective claims. We don't want the morals of the Bible to weigh us down. You know, we're too independent for that. The Bible is too old-fashioned for our modern taste. We live in a world of slogans like you do you and pro-choice with the idea being that a woman has a right to do with her body whatever she wants, even if it means taking the life of her own child. The irony, then, is that with the quest for freedom, we find that we have made a God out of ourselves. And attempting to get free from God, you become a slave to yourself and your own desires. America is increasingly becoming one of the most suicidal, depressed, materialistic, divorced, and porn-addicted nations. Yet we boast of being so free, so Christian. But are we? But this desire to throw off God's rule wasn't born on American shores in the 1600s. This is a human impulse. And it was first exploited in the beginning of Scripture when Satan offers unhinged freedom to Adam and Eve. He offers freedom from God's kingly and loving rule for freedom to live however they wanted. Never mind the fact that the blessing was actually found in living underneath God's kingdom. They were going to live forever without any sin. But in attempting to gain freedom, they fought against the very God who secured it. It's profoundly stupid. It's like going to Six Flags and complaining to, to the worker there that you have to wear a seatbelt on the roller coaster. Yet it's the seatbelt that is the very thing that's keeping you safe. This is why in verse 5 we see that God laughs. The holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God laughs. And this is actually one of the only contexts in the Bible where God is being seen to laugh. The context like this, where hard-hearted and rebellious creatures are trying to fight against the kingdom's reign. There's a sense in which God actually can't take them seriously. And in that... You and I, brothers and sisters, should find some sort of comfort when it seems like we're surrounded by those who are hostile to me. Now, before I move on, it's really easy at this point to just sort of point fingers at other people, at other countries, or even the United States, and just sort of lob stones and move on. Yet, that's only half the story. Though the text doesn't say this explicitly, I think if you understand the narrative of Scripture, you can't help but ask a follow-up question to the psalmist's initial question. 
So we, we know why the nations rage. But what happens when God's people rage against the Lord and His anointed? And that is a legitimate question because we have no shortage of examples of God's people raging against His kingdom and His rule. Think, for example, the Tower of Babel. Or even better, think, for example, the people. And then Moses giving them manna from heaven. And they complain. One commentator puts it like this. Quote, We must still count ourselves on the side of the nations when we take up the banner of freedom from God's rule. Even Israel, the people of God, can think of God's bonds as restrictive chains and seek to throw them off. Jeremiah makes it clear when he accuses the people of Israel. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Quoting from Jeremiah 2.20. Whenever we buy into the world's way of placing self and satisfaction before all else, we become the nations once again. So, question. When do you find yourself resisting God's rule and word? Do you find yourself joining in the scheming of the rebellious nations, or do you find yourself singing, singing with the psalmist of God's rule and reign? What areas of your life does God's rule seem more like chains instead of protective gear? Maybe it's around food, right? Fourth of July. Maybe you see a whole plate of food I didn't see, and your impulse is to just go straight in, right? And maybe God through the Holy Spirit is like, yo, chill out for a second. And you're like, but God, look, if only you knew the week I had, you would understand. Right? Or maybe you find an unreasonably difficult time with the parts of Scripture that talk about generosity with your money. <laughs> When do you find yourself resisting God's rule? Well, let's transition. The first thing we've seen is that we resist God's kingdom because it infringes upon our freedoms. But the second thing we notice here is that the nature of God's kingdom, and by nature I, I mean the characteristics of God's kingdom. Well, what's it like? We see this in verses 5 through 9. As we go into these verses, 5 and 6 show God's response to the rebellious nations. It's not just that he laughs, but there's something more. His response isn't necessarily that he's going to do something in time, but rather his response is that he's already done something in spite of their rebellion. He's established the king. He's established the Messiah on his holy hill in Zion. It's this fact that simultaneously adds another layer of absurdity to the nation's raging, as well as adding another layer of comfort to God's people. And then verse 7, 8, and 9, we see something interesting. The psalmist, he fades away from the scene. David steps back into it, or steps onto the scene for the first time, maybe. And his voice shines through as he details God's kingdom and recalls his own coronation. David explains the authority he has as God's anointed. And he says, the kingdom that he had was legitimate because of God's covenant promise. These verses are taken from 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to give a place to his people, free from enemies, a line of kings to flow from him, and an everlasting kingdom. And it's at the center of this covenant 
That there's a unique relationship between David and God. A relationship that can only be called one of a father-son relationship. It's in this sense that David is, well, son of God. So, as David ruled and reigned, God would give him whatever he asked. And he'd spread the kingdom across the world with the right to either bless or judge the nations that they encountered. That's the sort of gist of verses 8 and 9. And it's within this context, God's promises to Abraham even make more sense and come to fruition. It's Abraham's descendants that would be multiplied through the spread of this kingdom. And those who blessed Abraham's seed would be blessed. And those who cursed him or rebelled against him, as it were, they would be cursed and judged. And so, as Israel's anointed one, or maybe lowercase in Messiah, David, he was truly blessed. I mean, this is a guy who's after God's own heart. There's not many people in the Bible who are like that. And he's really, really successful in securing the kingdom. It's that historical fact that made the desire to overthrow God's rule so foolish. You can't overthrow what God has done. And this gave people hope. Yet... There's this huge question mark lingering over Israel. Because tragically, the same king who led Israel out to defeat their enemies was the same king who was defeated by his own desires. David was not only the anointed of the Lord, he also raged against the Lord. And the same offer made to Eve of unhinged freedom was the same offer made to David when David saw Bathsheba. And so David, using his freedom as king, instead of serving others, he serves himself. And so what does he do? He takes Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, and then he has her husband killed. So God disciplines him. David repents. Yet his household is tainted with violence and violence. And though at the end of his life, David expressed confidence in God's covenant promise to establish the kingdom, neither David nor any of his immediate offspring would see the kind of kingdom described in 2 Samuel 7 and echoed in Psalm 2. No Israelite king ever expanded the kingdom to the extent that Psalm 2 describes. In fact, the opposite happens. The kingdom underneath David's progeny, they actually result... They, they lead to the kingdom contracting, getting split up. They compromise with the nation. They become the raging nations against God. The holy city Zion itself is compromised. Yet, not too many years before David came to the throne, God's people begged for a king. So that they could govern, just like all the other nations. Judges 21-25 says that, Quote, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, <laughs> they got exactly what they asked for. A king who was fundamentally no different than them. Men who misused freedom to destroy. Men who pursued freedom of self instead of freedom from self. And brothers and sisters, this is where the tension is. It's not just that we crave freedom, but there's a sense in which we desperately need it. Freedom from ourselves. 
is not just that we need to be saved from the raging nations, but we need to be saved from our own rage and rebellion. It's not just that we need a king who is strong enough to save us from our enemies. We need a king who can conquer our greatest enemies, sin and death. But thank God the gospel is not found in something that you and I can do. But it's found in what God has already done. I mentioned earlier that none of David's immediate offspring would realize the extent of this messianic promise in verses 7 through 9. But... 2,000 years ago, another king was born. Not in a palace, but in a manger. Not in power, but weakness. And the great irony is that Gentiles, wise men, they came to the Lord to worship Him. While, while the anointed, the supposed anointed, King Herod, he plotted against the Lord. He sought to kill Him. But God laughed. He wouldn't let Herod touch him. And it was at this point where the strands of biblical theology start to make more sense. And at Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his son before the watching world, the true son of God, whose intimacy and knowledge of the Father we can barely comprehend. It's this true son who asked the father for an inheritance, and he gave him people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And it's this Jesus who, according to Acts 4, 25-28, became a victim of the raging nations when he became our crucified Messiah. Yet, it's on the cross that Jesus does what no other king could ever do. He actually gives us freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from its power. This is why Colossians 1.13 says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God deals with our idolatrous rebellion by giving us a cross. It's on the cross where Jesus draws in the nations, wins over the rebels, and it's through his resurrection that he's crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, you and I as Christians, we're somebody who's now a citizen of heaven. We're part of a new kingdom, a new way of life. We have a new politic. The nature of this kingdom is centered on humility, not arrogance. It's centered on worship of God, not worship of ourselves. It's centered on the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's how this psalm becomes our psalm, despite the fact that it was written so many years ago. And so let me bring this down to earth for us. Who is your king? Who is your king? We all crave freedom and believe someone or something is going to give it to us, either politician, relationship, experience, or ourselves. Maybe you're in grad school and your professor works you to death. But because you'd rather just sort of not rock the boat, you listen to everything he says and you work yourself into the grave. Your professor is, well, your king. Maybe you spend most of your time defending your political hot takes on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. More time spent on that than reading your Bible. Maybe your king is your political party. 
Or maybe your king is your religious tradition. You need to join a church not because of how closely it follows scripture, but because that's just the way that you were raised. Don't forget the sort of king we've been given and the kind of kingdom we've been transferred to. You know, we act awfully like the ludicrous nations that were presented before Jesus during his trial. We've been given the innocent Jesus, yet we choose the sinful Barabbas when we've obeyed the flesh rather than the spirit. We've been given the kind King Jesus, yet we choose the politics of Caesar every time we equate our political party with the gospel. We've been given the word made flesh, yet we choose the Pharisees every time we value tradition over scripture. Well, here's the last point I want to make. How do we get into this kingdom? We've seen in verses 1 through 4 that we resist God's rule because we want freedom. We've seen in verses 5 through 9 the nature of God's kingdom and how it's centered on Christ. But verses 10 through 12 show us the way to God's kingdom. The psalmist comes back on stage. We're left with the command to wise up, honor the son, and run to him. Right? ASAP. Not just to avoid wrath, but to be blessed and protected. Our response to this kingdom should be to run to the king because the way to the kingdom is by entering a loving, servant-oriented, trust-based relationship with Christ. And it's in this relationship that you're set free. And the gospel is appropriated to you. Our king is willing to save you. Yes, I'm talking to you. Think of yourself when I, make it, when I say this. Don't think of the person sitting next to you or a hypothetical person. I'm talking to you. He's willing to save you, regardless of your sex, regardless of your politics, regardless of your race. He's willing to save you. So what's stopping you? My plea this morning is that you find Jesus Christ more beautiful, more trustworthy, more glorious than any ruler, president, or authority figure in your life. The kings of this earth, they ask for permission to do this and that. But our king asks permission from no one because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The kings of this earth make and scrap plans, but our king Jesus never had or never will need a backup plan because he knows all things from beginning to end. The kings of this earth rule by stepping on those who are weaker than them, but our king rules by stepping down and entering into our weakness. How could you turn him away? Wise up. Don't be stupid. Run to the cross. There's no other place to find freedom from self. It's at the cross where you die to yourself and you become alive to God. The blessings of freedom only come through serving King Jesus and living for his kingdom. Well, as I close this, I want to offer three implications that flow from Psalm 2. Gonna bring this down to earth even more, hopefully. The first implication from Psalm 2 is that because Christ died to make us free from self, Christians should be the most humble people in America. Because Christ died to make us free from self, Christians should be the most humble people in America. Here Martin Luther in his treatise, Freedom of a Christian, 
Through the gospel, a free mind serves one's neighbor willingly and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss. He does not distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or unthankfulness, but he most freely and most willingly spends himself in all that he has, whether he wastes all of the thankfulness or whether he gains a reward. Who then can comprehend the riches and the glory of the Christian life? lacks nothing. It's Lord over sin, death, and hell. And yet, at the same time, it serves, ministers to, and benefits all men. There's no other worldview that does this. This is the freedom that we have in Christ. The second implication that flows from Psalm 2 is this. Because Jesus died to make us his heavenly citizens, our spiritual freedom is more important than our political freedom. This is a point that I think many of us, especially here at CARS, are probably sympathetic to. But, but don't hear me say that our political freedom isn't important or even at times related to spiritual concerns. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yet the point must be made, even if just for a moment, that these are two fundamentally different realities. And if you don't distinguish between these two, then you end up in very very strange places. Whether it be the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor that Roman, or it be pushes to win back the soul of America, those realities confuse the fact that our spiritual freedom is fundamentally hinged on the kingdom of God, not the geopolitical nation we find ourselves in. There's a big difference between a Christian nation and a nation with Christians. The former is technically the church, the latter is just the scripture. The third implication that flows from Psalm 2 is that because Christ's kingdom is only spread through his church, we should prioritize the church living biblically before we expect the nation to. Before, let me say it one more time. Because Christ's kingdom is only spread through his church, we should prioritize the church living biblically before we expect the nation to. Here's the other side of the coin. At best, it'd be incredibly naive of me to suggest that there really aren't any political challenges facing the church in America. For example, consider the challenges facing Christian colleges or adoption agencies that are confronted with this sort of widespread attempt to totally overthrow everything that we know from science about sexuality. There's a very real sense in which America rages against God's rule. Yet, judgment begins with the household of God. The way in which the culture has changed is not by powerful celebrities and politicians becoming Christians. It's by average nobodies like you and me living out the gospel and proclaiming it. The gospel that brings true freedom. God cares just as much, if not more, dare I say, about your struggling neighbor becoming a Christian than he does about Justin Bieber or Jordan Peterson becoming a Christian. God's not dependent upon them. Because God loves calling and using the weak and average and the nobody. And that's how he gets the most glory. Well, let me close us by way of reminder. If you only remember one thing, 
know, you go home and you eat too much barbecue and you fall asleep on the couch or something. And you wake up and you realize you haven't remembered anything I said. Remember this. Remember this. In Christ, we have an incredible freedom. It's freedom from self. Freedom to serve, to love, and to worship without fear of condemnation. Have you experienced this freedom? What is freedom? And have you experienced it? If not, run to him. He's more than willing to save. <laughs> As we end, I want to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. It should be up on the screen behind us, but if not, you can find it in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.